podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. So, I'm aware I owe you a couple of podlets, but I thought I'd wait until the quarterfinals were completely done, which they are now. I'm recording this on Thursday morning, New York time. Probably the most bleary-eyed I have been at any point in this trip, because Carlos Alcaraz and Yannick Sinner finished just before 3am last night. I'm looking at a press conference transcript that says 3.40am on it. I don't know if Carlos Alcaraz has ever done such a late press conference, but... um, yeah, I don't even think those statistics exist, which is why uh, I don't know. But I can't imagine he's done many later local time. Funnily enough, I do remember that Carlos Alcaraz's big sort of breakthrough win, or his maybe his first ATP Tour win, was against Albert Ramos Vignolas in uh, Rio de Janeiro back in 2020, February 2020. And that match definitely, it started around midnight, and it was around three hours, so... That actually might not have been far off. Um, maybe people who were watching it live or some of our Brazilian listeners who might have been there um, can maybe remember exactly what time Alcaraz finally finished that one off. But needless to say, as he's proven this week against Marin Cilic, a match that finished at 2.30 in the morning, uh, or 2.24 I think technically, and then tonight, or last night I should say, against Yannick Sinner when he finished at 2.50 in the morning is that Carlos Alcaraz may be 19 but he doesn't mind going up past bedtime. Um, I guess we'll talk about the tennis first because it was a really good match, uh, a really thrilling match. Those who lasted the whole thing really got their money's worth, to say the least, and and really enjoyed it, I'm sure. Uh, Not everyone did, not even half of them did, but I suppose credit to those who managed it. Uh, I had some friends who were there for Alcaraz Chilich. I think they left at 1am because that, you know, they had to go to work in the morning. <laughs> this was played on a Wednesday night and it's just after the long week, Labor Day weekend, um, which is traditionally the end of the summer. Almost everyone's going back to work at the moment. Um, so everyone had to go home and sleep, uh, which eventually we all did as well. Um, there were so many points that I wrote down and said point of the match um, in my notes. I think I put it down five times, but the first one was at two all in the first set, uh, Deuce, I think. And what I love about Yannick Sinner is that he is aggressive, but he's he's kind of the opposite of Carlos Alcaraz. They're both very aggressive players, but Sinner is kind of aggressive in a more orthodox and almost like regimented way, whereas Alcaraz is a bit more flary. And so at this point kind of summed it up. Um, Sinner made a really lovely low volley at the net, you know, which for a guy who looks like he shouldn't be able to make good low volleys because of the shape of him and the sort of lankiness and the limbs um, was really impressive. And then Alcaraz ran it down, he lobbed him and landed it. And I think if it were Alcaraz chasing that down, he'd have hit the tweener and, you know, maybe that would have worked. Sometimes it does. But Sinner kind of ran back and just did the sort of turn around, uh, you know, spin around to hit the forehand, and he ripped up the back of it and hit it cross-court across the front of Alcaraz and landed the passing shot. Um, I don't, to be honest, think... I don't think he would have got there. He looked a little bit like he left it, but I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have got there, even if he he tried. Um, It was a fabulous pass, and it kind of... I mean, the crowd were already really up for it, because both players had broken in the first four games. Um, Sinner actually, I think, probably came out pretty nervous 
he had well look he he'd gone to five sets with Altmaier in the first round he'd gone to five sets with Ivashka in the fourth round and that Ivashka match he hit 14 double faults um which okay over five sets isn't mega but it's still quite a lot and he hit three in the first game and missed a forehand to kind of drop the first game on serve and I just worried a bit whether that was a sign of nerves but he settled pretty quickly the first serve was a problem the whole first set I think he had 56% first serve percentage in that first set um, which you know isn't really going to get it done against a guy who's going to out rally you quite a lot as well but he definitely picked it up. So, I mean, Alcaraz took that first set, inevitably. I think he broke three times within it. Um, and the thing that really made the difference in the second set was that Sinner picked up his first serve in a big way. And actually, the, the, the real moment for me was, maybe not the moment of the match, but and I will praise Alcaraz in a minute too, but I wanted to say some things about Yannick Sinner because... As the loser, you're always going to get talked about less. Um, is he went love 50, like he went love forty down, serving at five six, which frankly was just mostly the sub the product of some really good returning from um, from Carlos Alcaraz, who who is more than capable of that. And, and most of the night, he returned really well. Frankly, as did Sinner. Um, but yeah, so he went love 40 down, 5-6. You know, that is set point to go two sets down against Carlos Alcaraz. That is good night Vienna, or whichever European city you would prefer. And he landed five first serves in a row, and big first serves. Four of the first four unreturned. Um, and then the fifth one, I mean, it's in the ad court. And he hits it out wide, and Alcaraz just about gets it back, and he, he makes the approach shot, kind of, you know, the the classic plus one forehand, having served out wide, hit the forehand then inside in, um, and make him scamper across and hopefully not get there. He actually ran past it, and then hit the behind-the-back uh, shot, which we all know. Um, he struck it pretty well, Sinner made the volley, and then Alcaraz runs the ball down and... Um, makes the pass like it's just the speed of the guy is unreal um you know the shot making all very impressive but the physicality of him is is really spectacular um not to mention the fact that when he does this stuff he then sticks his finger up in the air or his arm up in the air and you know conducts the crowd brilliantly um he had another he had another set point in that game, Alcaraz, um, when it looked like he'd made the lob, but then Sinner kind of plays the backhand overhead and um, Alcaraz missed the, the put away. And then Sinner got out of the game. You know, he served and volleyed at Deuce, which he'd barely done in the match, uh, and then got a, another serve in and, and Alcaraz nets the return. Uh, and so forcing the tie break. But it was just, it made me realise how, you know, Yannick's in his second serve is clearly a problem. But his first serve can be, when it's right, and under pressure, I mean, really incredible. And I think that's a big a big plus for the future of Yannick Sinner, who I think he's 11th in the live rankings, but I've no doubt he will spend a lot of time in the top 10. And I probably did doubt that a little bit at times over the last 18 months. Excuse me for a second. <coughs> because it's raw, these podlets, you, uh, you get the coughs, unfortunately. And, you know, it's been a long two weeks so far. 
Um, but yeah, that that kind of clutch serving is is what kind of stands out among really top players. Um, and you know, I think that's that's going to stand him in very good stead. And you know what? It's a great first serve, it really is. So um, all all good on that front. Um, but yeah, forced the tie break, uh, which you know I think there were. So it was a f- sixteen point tie break, and off the top of my head, I think there were nine, maybe ten winners. I mean, it was really high quality. And to be honest, from the kind of rallying point of view. It was a really high-quality match. I know there were lots of breaks of serve, but, you know, I think that maybe says a lot about how, how good the rallying was because, you know, Alcaraz doesn't do a lot on first serve, frankly. I think it's getting better, but I think when I spoke to Ferrero, you know, when he was still only 17, the big thing he said was like, well, the backhand needs a bit of work and, you know, the first serve at the moment is not where we need it to be. And, you know, that's that. I don't know if that remains true, but... It's definitely an area you can imp- he can improve, um, but also it's like well <laughs> he just backs himself to out rally anyone so what's the problem anyway it's something we might talk about with Calvin um, when we do a full pod later hopefully this weekend um, and yeah and then we got into the the third set another kind of absurd game this time at six five with Alcaraz trying to serve out the the set I mean this is the thing as well is that you know Sinner then won the tiebreak seven love you know shut him out. One ridiculous, um, ridiculous pass. I think at four love, Alcaraz hits the sort of inside in approach shot, and Sinner's a good, I don't know, six, eight, ten feet behind the baseline, and he just and on the stretch and hits this cross court forehand pass that was just, just crazy. Um, and yeah, he he shut out the tiebreak, and and he also broke. Um, a really good return game actually against uh, at six five when Alcaraz was over the set and he broke broke back having just been broken um, at five all. Uh, both of them I would say were really good return games. Like it, I wouldn't have faulted the servers again there. I would say that both of them returned really well. Um, but yeah, so all of a sudden Alcaraz sits down or he goes off court, two sets to one down. Um, it's one in the morning and. He's won more points. He's ahead on almost every statistic, but and has he had five set points in the second set. He served for it in the third, and yet he's two sets to one down. He has to go five, and I think mentally, I mean that is tough, really tough, not to let that get to you. And if I'm honest, I think it probably did get to him for a little bit. Sinner broke him in the first game of the fourth set and looked looked pretty in control, and served for the match. You know, Alcaraz was looking a bit lost. At one point, he said to his box, "Tell me what to serve. I don't know where to serve." Um, it, he just—he did look lost. He was sort of straining his neck and his teeth like a sort of frustrated teenage, you know, and they just can't quite understand what's going on, or they're just too full of hormones. Um, not that necessarily he was, but he was really frustrated. You know, he had a—he had chances on the sinner serve. Um, at two one, and then when Sinner finally served for the match at five four, you know, he he served really well on the first break point. Um, bomb down eight at thirty forty, and he had match point advantage Sinner, and he misses his sort of backhand plus one, and I, I think it was fairly makeable. And once you're into the rally, it's anyone's game. 
but I think that'll probably that will sit with him for a while that one um that opportunity he he also missed a forehand I think at three two forty thirty in the third set which um you know I think he obviously won the third set anyway but he mentioned it which I thought was significant um yeah I he said afterwards he said it would hurt um which which of course of course it would um I think this one will hurt for quite a while but tomorrow I wake up or today I wake up (laughs) trying to somehow take only the positives try to take the other part away but it's tough for sure um, next tournament I'll play Davis Cup before I want to practice again the best possible way try to improve maybe next time I can win this no it was a very high level for sure it was a good match I hope also for the spectators yeah last time I won this time he won that's it I think that's a pretty resilient attitude for a guy who served for the match lost in five sets and then sits down ten minutes later in front of the press I think that's pretty darn impressive um, yeah the fifth set I mean the level continued really like I couldn't believe neither of them really looked tired that was a ridiculous thing and they both played a lot of tennis in this tournament um it was the second longest match in US Open history it went past five hours it was the latest finish in US Open history by 25 minutes and yeah then Alcaraz serves it out at at 5-3 and yeah you do just look in awe at these kids like I wrote a long thing yesterday and today, depending on exactly what time zone you're in, talking about how Nick Kyrgios will, you know, kind of bridge the gap between the GOAT era and this new era. And to be honest, you know, Alcaraz and Sinner are there, and Alcaraz is a pretty big star. Sinner isn't such a big star, but he's getting there. But they won't play each other at every tournament, and they are only two players. And to be honest, the matches that Alcaraz has played against other people in this tournament have been haven't been like ratings busters. You know, the Brooksby match was fun to watch. The the Baez match in the first round was fun to watch. Obviously, the Chilich thing was long, and parts of it were good to watch. Um, but he's not quite yet this standalone superstar. Whereas Kyrgios, because he's been around longer, basically, he has this sort of bank of people who know who he is. And people who know he's entertaining. And not everyone has been converted to the Carlos Alcaraz scripture yet. So that will take time. It'll take time with Yannick Sinner. But, you know, these guys hopefully are going to play 55 times over the next 15 years. And hopefully in major finals. And, and, you know, someone said it on Twitter that this looks and feels like the new Federer Nadal. And that's a lot of pressure to put on, you know, this sort of rivalry. And it's a big ask, but it's already, you know, the tennis is amazing. The tennis is really amazing. Um, And lovely that they're both aggressive and willing to come forward and willing to try things. You know, Calvin often says that he doesn't like the Nadal-Djokovic rivalry because actually it's a bit sort of baseline sluggy. And I kind of get it. Um, But... I do think that this is so watchable and will continue to be so watchable. And, yeah, I mean, long live Alcaraz and Sinner, quite frankly. You could tell it was high quality as well because all the players were watching it. Like, um, some of the doubles guys were there, had hung around to watch it. I saw Eduardo Roger Vasselin, 
who had played mixed, I think he's in the mixed final maybe. Um, he was there right to the end in front row seats. Um, Coco Goff said she was getting a flight at 6am, but she stayed up till half two, ten to three to watch it. Feliciana Lopez was tweeting about it. Stan Wawrinka, you know, players were really into this match because they, they know a good match when they see one. And probably they knew a good match when they saw it on the draw sheet as well. So, what a great match. I'm sure we'll talk about it with George and Calvin as well, but a real pleasure to be there, even if I am now absolutely exhausted. Um, the other results from yesterday, just to kind of fill you in on, Francis TFO battered Andre Rublev, quite frankly. Uh, straight sets. Really sad to see Rublev in tears in his chair at one of the change bends as it was just slipping away. I think that's six Grand Slam quarterfinals for him now, and he's lost all six of them. Um you know, he, he is someone who's very harsh on himself on the court and, you know, he says he's working on that, but it's also been a very tough year for him. You know, he was the guy who wrote No War on a Camera, I think in Doha, um, when the invasion of Ukraine first kicked off. And he did that amazing um, kind of elongated interview uh, with a Russian blogger whose name escapes me, which Daria Kazakina kind of took all the headlines because she talked about um, being gay and being being in a same-sex relationship and everything that went with that. But Rublev talked a lot in that documentary as well and, and talked about his own struggles and, and what was hard about about that. Um, so, yeah, you know, you sort of want Rublev's season to end now in some ways because I think the guy needs some decompression time. But, you know, he'll be back and he's played some decent tennis this, this week as well. Uh, in the women's side, Arena Sabalenka, super locked in Arena Sabalenka, like really locked in, just looked really focused and... She beat Karolina Pliskova, who of course beat her in the semi-finals of Wimbledon what last year, so there's a kind of nice symmetry to that. And Iga Shrontek beat Jessica Pagula. Um, second set was dreadful. There were 10 breaks of serve, but uh, Shrontek played a, a good tie break to, to clinch it, and she says she's getting a little bit better every match, which is all that she asks for herself. Now, I think I haven't done a podlet since the previous night's tennis as well, which feels like about three years ago. But on what was supposed to be a bumper night session, and in fairness it was, albeit they maybe didn't get the winners they wanted, uh, Coco Goff and Nick Kyrgios both went out in the same night. Uh, Caroline Garcia played one of the best performances I've seen from a woman this year. Uh, she was imperious against Coco Goff. She won 6-3, 6-4. She stood inside the baseline. Even on first serve, she was pretty much inside the baseline. And you have to remember that Coco Goff has hit the second fastest serve in US Open history at this tournament. And Caroline Garcia almost stood on the baseline to her first serve and said, bring it on, I'll, I'll take what you've got. And on second serve, she was well inside it. Um, and yeah, she was fabulous. Her return of serve was brilliant. Um, there were loads of winners. I don't think Goff played her best match. I think she felt the pressure of having Garcia doing that to her. Um, and... You know, she had talked beforehand about how she said she had to accept that Garcia would hit some winners and that was okay. But I think she probably didn't necessarily mentally prepare herself for what it would be like to not have, you know, the safety net of her big serve and to really have someone going after your second serve. I think she had six double faults in the match, which kind of tells you that she was nervy on second serve. Um, I think she was broken three times actually only in the end, but very few service games felt that comfortable. Um, and when they did, you know, I think it was it was pretty much at times when the set or the match was over. 
Um, and yeah, Garcia just just played fabulously, and I, I think she has a real chance. She plays Onzjabur in the semi-final, someone she knows very well. They're good friends. They played against each other in juniors. Um, and Jabur, obviously a Grand Slam finalist already, having reached the Wimbledon final. Uh, she beat Isla Tomljanovic, again, another really good friend. Nice that <laughs> these people know each other. Um, and yeah, she was played in straight sets and, and played pretty well, dealt with what Isla could throw at her and, and more. Um, it'll be a fascinating mesh of styles, that one, because... You know, Jabur all slicing and dicing. Uh, Caroline Garcia, big and powerful and often flat. So, interesting to see how they deal with each other. They know each other very well. Um, if you want to head over to inews.co.uk, uh, I interviewed Patrick Ritogli this week, uh, who I'm going to do a big feature with for Saturday's newspaper and online. And it'll also be part of the newsletter, which you can subscribe to. Just head to my Twitter and you'll see a, a thing about it. Um but he said that Garcia was playing like Serena. You know, it was that style, that aggression, and that kind of refusal to take a step back that was very Serena-esque. And I did see it at the time. It was like a bit like watching Serena. So fascinating to see how Garcia goes. And finally, the two men's quarterfinals on what was then Tuesday night. Casper um, Ruud... Well, he played during the day and saw off Matteo Berrettini in straight sets. Berrettini, not really at it, to be honest. Didn't play well. It was under the roof, which I'm not convinced favours him particularly. I think he would rather it a bit drier and cooler and, you know, the ball flying through the air a bit quicker. But I don't know um, that these things can be a bit of a wash in New York when it's so humid, roof or no roof. But, yeah, I mean, the, the third set, he, he did play better. Um, you know, the third set, I think, was 84 minutes long something along those lines, and he certainly came to the party, but, you know, he was, I think he was 6-1-5-1 down at one point, because he was just absolutely nowhere, really. Um, First serve percentage wasn't that bad, but it wasn't very effective, and Rude just seemed able to get hold of it. I mean, Rude's a really good returner, uh, obviously, and has a pretty mean forehand, and he was able to keep it away from Berrettini's forehand. Um, I think Berrettini only hit double figures winners in one of the sets. Hit five winners in the first set. I mean, that is... And two of them were aces. I mean, that is pretty wild um, for a guy who is a you know an aggressive tennis player. Uh, and again, will come again, but... You know, all credit to Casper Ruud, played played very well and nullified one of the biggest serves in the game, if not the biggest. The one you might say is bigger or more effective is Nick Kyrgios, or possibly Karen Hatchinoff, quite frankly, because this was five sets of, I hesitate to say serve bot, because I think that does them both a disservice, but the first three sets lasted two hours. I mean, we were done with the first set in 36 minutes, and it was 7-5. I mean, it was crazy. And it wasn't super edifying. Like, you know, not many games... I mean, not a single game except the last one in the first set went beyond 30. There were no juices until the last game when uh, Hatchinoff broke him kind of out of nowhere. And the second set, I think there were one juice. I mean, I know you don't want to go juice ad, juice ad, juice ad forever, but it was not super interesting to watch. I think most people would agree with that. 
and yeah i didn't i didn't love it uh if i'm quite honest um but it did eventually kind of you know it's a bit like the first few rounds of a heavyweight boxing contest they kind of felt each other out and it did eventually and and nick kind of eventually picked up the crowd picked himself up he was very flat in the early stages you know, I think he said afterwards he was pretty knackered, and I thought that at the time he looked pretty tired. And, you know, he, he said at Wimbledon that he was exhausted at the end of it, and it is hard. These Grand Slams are hard. It's not just the physical, it's the mental. You know, you're you're there for... Most of the time, if you're into the second week, you've already been in New York two weeks, because you probably got there a week before the tournament. And you've had a week of build-up and talking about it and the expectation, and then you've got trying to navigate your way through the draw and then you've got to play the biggest match of your life and that is tiring and I think that got to Kyrgios a bit he's talked a lot about being away from home for a long time as well and he was just you know trying to stay with it that was what his the guys in his box were just saying just stay with it mate stay in it keep going you'll get him because he was getting so frustrated that he wasn't breaking um, hatching off when he wanted to or when he had the opportunity to do which was extremely rare and, uh, yeah, he was sat on his chair at the end of the third set, two sets to one down, just screaming at his box, saying, don't know what a break point is. It's sad. Don't even know what a break point is. It's embarrassing. I think what he meant was that he had failed to break Hatchinoff, having had opportunities to do so, and he hadn't converted them. In the first game of the third set, he had two break points. And in fairness, like Hatchinoff served incredibly well on break points. Um, those two break points, there was an ace out wide and then there was an unreturned serve out wide and you couldn't really fault it, to be honest. You know, the guy, the guy did serve really well and he's going to be hard to beat. I mean, Rude will take a lot from the fact that he's beaten Berrettini and so when Hatchinoff turns up having hit 30 aces um, in the <laughs> in the previous match, he will think, well, you know, I've, I've beaten Berrettini, what have you got? I think Berrettini's a better player than Hatchinov as well, so I think Rude will take a lot and will fancy a second Grand Slam final of the summer. Kyrgios, meanwhile, kind of walks away and, you know, he said he was devastated. He was heartbroken. Um, he did give Karen some credit. He said he's a fighter, a warrior, probably the best server I've played all tournament. I mean, I think there's no question of that um, because I'm trying to think, I don't think Kyrgios played realistically anyone else who would... I mean, Medvedev, I suppose, Um and Kokonaki's got a pretty decent serve, but yeah, I mean, Medvedev didn't serve well against Kyrgios, and fair enough, Kyrgios returned like a beast that night. Um, but yeah, he, he, he was obviously gutted, and you know, he said, I think, what a lot of people think, which is that no one cares how you do at tournaments outside of Grand Slams, and no one even cares if you go to a Grand Slam and improve on your career best, or get to the quarterfinal having never got there before. You either win it or you don't. And I think that is a little bit absolutist and a bit fatalist of him, but... Um, yeah, it's basically it. If you want to talk about getting outside the tennis bubble, which I've tried to talk about this week on Twitter a lot, and not everyone has agreed, then that's it. You've got to win a Grand Slam. That's how you get people to know who you are. Um, Kyrgios obviously has done that without winning a Grand Slam, but he's done a long done it for a long time, and he's one of the most entertaining players on the planet. But uh, when it comes to results, pe- people will look at that and go, well, you've not won a Slam, you know. So what? You've had a lovely career. It's been fun to watch you, mate. But what's the difference between you and Joe Wilfred Songa? Which I know is not an insult because Joe Wilfred Songa is a great guy. But that's the reality of it. You've got to go win a slam. 
And that is now what four men who've never done it before have in front of them. They're going to try and go and win a slam. Uh, Karen Hatchinoff against Kasper Ruud and Carlos Alcaraz against Francis Tiafoe. If I had to pick one, I'd say Alcaraz. It's kind of obvious, but I think he will be able to withstand the fabulous atmosphere that will result from the match against Tiafoe. And I think he will enjoy the pressure. And I think he will feel like he's been there before. Which I appreciate doesn't make a lot of sense because he's he's not been there before. Not, you know, in a semi-final that is. But he's been in big matches and he's been in big atmospheres and he seems to relish it. So I think that'll serve him well. Uh, as for Francis TFO, I mean, uh, hell, it'd be an amazing story if he won the US Open. And it'd be great for tennis, especially in America. It'd be great for, you know, t- tennis's greatest ever black player. I mean, greatest ever player, but also the fact Serena is a, a black woman has been massive for um, black women everywhere. And I think black people everywhere who have all of a sudden looked at tennis and felt that they belonged. If Francis Tiafo then went and won the Grand Slam that she retired in, it, it, there would be an amazing symmetry there and a continuation of that message. You know, people often talk about the Tiger Woods factor and how that didn't have the effect on golf that people thought it would. I think the Serena Williams effect has existed and, and multiple players have talked about that. And TFO, I think, would be a continuation of that. So that would be an amazing story. Alcraz would be an amazing story. Casper Ruud would be a good story, having you know lost the French Open final earlier this summer. Um, great, I think Scandinavia is an area of the world that's produced so many great players, and we haven't had much success from there in recent years, so that there'd be something to that. And if Karen Hatchinoff wins it, it it's going to be controversial because he's Russian, and it'll it'll be a bit embarrassing for various people. Lots of other people will think it's sort of justice. Um, and there's a big story there as well. So four pretty interesting stories brewing uh, one way or another out the US Open. I mean, I suppose I'm a journalist. I'm supposed to find an interesting story no matter what, right? So uh, I'll make it work. Don't worry, lads. And then tonight, Caroline Garcia against Andrzej Iga Shrontek against Arena Sabalenka. Hard not to back Iga Shrontek at the moment, but I don't think she's playing brilliantly. And if Sabalenka plays like she did against Pliskova, Shrontek will have to work bloody hard. And as for Garcia and Jabour, they're both in great form. Um, and they'll be on first, which I think is an advantage. You know exactly when you're going to start. You don't have to get too nervous about it. I think that'll favour Garcia because it's her first time. Albeit she's very level-headed and she didn't seem remotely nervous against Coco Goff. Um, but this is different now. There's expectation on her, I think. Against Goff, she was the underdog. You know, she wasn't the crowd favourite by any stretch. You can just go out there and swing. This might be a little bit different, but we'll see how she goes. I'll hopefully get Calvin and George on a little bit later in the week, probably to preview the two finals. Uh, in the meantime, thanks very much for listening, and make sure you come back next time. Sports Social Podcast Network.